The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, just before we get started, I want to give a very quick shout out to Nicolas and Carl, our two newest members of our new Patreon community. Welcome, guys. Uh, also, we have just launched our new China Africa Weekly Digest. It's only available right now on Patreon. So if our daily news coverage that we're doing might be a little too much to handle, some people have complained that they're getting just way too many emails and it's too much daily coverage, a weekly digest might just be the thing you need. But you can only get it by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash China Africa Project and we'll make sure you get it every week in your inbox, plus some really fun Zoom calls, happy hours, and some other cool things that we're doing. So once again, patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Very quickly, also before we get to our show today, we're tracking right now the coup uh, that's underway in Sudan, that pre-dawn raid by the military on Monday morning, yet another African country now falling to military overthrow. And that is an interesting thing that we're keeping our eye on is how quickly are the Chinese going to respond to the coup? Because if you recall of what happened in Guinea, it was within 24 hours that both Xinhua and the Chinese foreign ministry issued a statement condemning the coup. But in other coups, say in Myanmar, they waited for weeks in order to acknowledge it. And it really depends a little bit on the nature of the interests. And in Sudan, there are a lot of Chinese interests. Not only is there huge amounts of oil investment from CNPC, but there's also some great power rivalry issues. The Chinese are vying for to rebuild uh, some of the ports and also to rebuild some of the shipping fleet. Lots of interests. Keep an eye on how long it's going to take for the Chinese to issue a statement. By the way, we're recording this on Monday afternoon, so by the time you listen to it, it's entirely possible that the Chinese have issued a statement on this, rendering this whole discussion moot, but we're keeping an eye on it at the time of this recording. Okay, today we're going to be focusing on the Kenyan economy specifically, but also China-Africa trade more broadly. Now, China-Africa trade for the year through August, the figures have just come out from the Chinese customs authorities. Here's the number, $162.7 billion for the first eight months of the year. That's up over 40% compared to the same time last year and well on track to surpass 2020's $187 billion in two-way trade, assuming, again, that everything kind of keeps up. And there is a giant big asterisk on that assumption, so we'll get to that. The trade is not spread out evenly across the continents. One very important thing to remember when we talk about China-Africa trade, it's highly concentrated in about 10 countries, but about a quarter of it is in South Africa alone uh, with about $35 billion. But today we're going to focus specifically on Kenya. For the first six months of the year, Kenya imported $1.88 billion worth of goods from China. That puts it a little bit ahead of last year when total imports 
we're at $3.38 billion. Now, I want you to remember that number for later on in our discussion. It's going to be very important. But this raises some very serious concerns when we talk about China-Africa trade, and it's one of the issues that we're going to see if it's going to be on the agenda at next month's FOCAC summit. Now, a couple of issues here. Number one, it's the dominance of the Chinese in the Kenyan trade balance that might be of concern. So according to the newly published Central Bank of Kenya annual report, 23.8% of all Kenyan imports come from China. Here's the problem. It's that it's higher, way higher than any other trading partner. Twice as much as what Kenya imports from India, three times as much as what Kenya imports from the UAE, seven times as much as what Kenya imports from the US, and 10 times as much from the UK. So the key issue here is that if Kenya wanted to diversify its trading relationships, it would be almost impossible at that disproportionate level, if not, I mean, if not outright impossible. The second problem here is the trade deficit. Remember when I said that Kenya bought $3.38 billion worth of goods from China? Well, in return, they sold just $139 million. That's $139 million. That's it. And it's the same situation in all but 10 African countries where that trade balance is, is more stable. So about 40 to 45 African countries do run very serious trade deficits with China. And now there's a new concern that we also have to take into account. The massive disruptions to the global supply chain that are going to be felt much more in places like Kenya and other African countries than anywhere else. So the news that there have been flare-ups of COVID in China, which could lead to the reimposition of trading curbs, port closures, all sorts of disruptions, plus the slowing Chinese economy, the power outages, and the fact that shipping containers, ships themselves, and cargo aircraft are all being diverted to more lucrative trade routes are all the kinds of factors that Kenyan traders are keeping a close eye on right now. Kobus, that is a long-winded introduction to get to the fact that the trade imbalance and the vulnerabilities that many African economies, not just Kenya, now face in the global economy, should be very high on the agenda at the FOCAC summit. Yes, I mean, it, it certainly, I think it, it it looks like it certainly will be high on the agenda. I think it's not only the, the kind of general trade problems that, that we're seeing at the moment, but then also the wider issue of, of, of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement and how it's supposed to be connecting to China, where, you know, I think on the one hand, there's, a, there's really a lot of opportunity there, but there's also a lot of risk, I think, that many African governments would like to try and avoid, particularly the risk of, of being just like fragile local industries being flooded by Chinese imports and you know kind of like squaring that circle within the context of a massive kind of trade liberalization scheme you know kind of will be I think a, a, a tricky line to walk so it'll be interesting to see you know how how they do it. Well let's get a perspective now from someone who knows this subject probably better than anyone else and Setsi Wary is a Nairobi-based development economist who's been following China's economic engagement and trading relationship with the continent for the better part of a decade. And Setse, a very good afternoon to you, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. It's wonderful to speak with you again, especially at this time with so much going on. The stakes are very, very high. Let's start with those trade figures. What's your assessment of Kenya's current trading dynamic with China? 
Thank you very much for that question. And it's actually quite serendipitous that we are just completing a study with the Overseas Development Institute looking at precisely this issue, the trade relationship Kenya has with key, with key partners. So if you're looking at China specifically, while you're pointing to the trade deficit question, what our research with ODI is actually showing is that while imports have been quite stable, um, a bit volatile, but quite stable between 2015 and, let's say, 2019, we are seeing a lot of momentum in the export space. We are seeing a very big growth in exports to China. So I think something to bear in mind is that there is a view, I think, in Kenya and with China, that there are key um, products that Kenya produces that the Chinese market is deeply interested in. So whether this is, you know, minerals and metals like titanium, whether it's agricultural products, you know, gums and resins. And the other thing we did this research, we looked at, well, what could Kenya be trading um, with China? And so looking at things like chemical uh, produce, iron, um, chemical products rather. So I think the story there that is a bit under the radar is that that trade deficit is, is, is recognized, and I think Kenya is not alone in this, and that there are attempts to pivot that and align export capabilities with the areas in China where market demand is growing. So I think that's really been what I see has been the missing piece in a lot of these trade deficit questions is that a lot of countries are not doing what we did, which is, well, let's look at where we have competitive advantage in exports, and then let's look at where the demand in China is growing so that we know what we should continue exporting, um, but also we know the, the new products that we should be producing that, you know, the historical trade in China and, and the historical relationship with China indicates that the demand there is growing. So I think there is a really deep need for deeper market analysis to transition from a trade deficit to one where capabilities are being aligned with export capacity. I remember in previous conversations with you, you mentioned the issue of of a lack of coordination between regional member states, um, and which then leads to them actually competing with each other to, to try and pr produce the same set of products or same set of services. Um, to which extent is this planning that you're seeing also taking into account these kind of regional connections, or to be, uh, or is it mostly happening in a kind of a within a nation state context? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. And I think that's precisely the sort of direction we need to be heading. Right now, I have not seen a coordinated effort. Um, if you're looking at the EAC or Commerce or SADAC to look at your ex the export capabilities, link that to the value chains that could be regional, and then have a concerted strategy around, okay, well, how do we leverage our, our regional comparative advantage, which will be a lot broader than any single nation. How do we leverage our regional comparative advantage to target the Chinese market where demand is growing for the products that we're good at? So what we're seeing is just what we said. We are still seeing a situation where a lot of countries with similar capabilities are sort of taking market share from each other um, for to key export markets, China included. So I think in the spirit of the African continental free trade area, I think if we could look more at doing this analysis of export capabilities and linking that to Chinese demand, very quickly, you'll begin to see the value chains where regional cooperation would actually be beneficial. But I think without that information and with that information asymmetry, we will continue to see a form of, you know, sort of trying to do it on your own and almost a form of protectionism in the way African countries are trying to meet what, we, what they know is a massive market. 
Yeah, and this brings up the issue of tariffs, for example. So we talked about AFCFTA, that's the African Continental Free Trade Area, which, by the way, just last week, the Chinese Ministry of Commerce signed an agreement with the Secretariat of the AFCFTA to form a working group on talking about how to coordinate and harmonize trading relationships between China and the AFCFTA. So that's very interesting that there's always this talk of putting the, the belt and road and bolting that on to AFCFTA, which might open some very interesting possibilities. But if you talk to traders in Beijing, African traders in Beijing, they'll say buying flowers, for example, from Kenya, I forget if it's Kenya or Ethiopia, one has a 15% tariff and the other one doesn't. And that's the kind of lack of harmonization that really pits African countries against one another rather than harmonizing their their tariffs so that they can negotiate with the Chinese on import tariffs so that, say, Kenyan flowers don't have it and Ethiopian flowers do so that they're both at the same level. So what will it take to get to this regional cooperation, given the fact that it's never really happened before in African history, as far as I know, to have any real effective regionalism in negotiating with an outside power? And the only reason I'm skeptical of this is because I know it's a long-held dream that people want. But when we look at the European Union, the most advanced grouping that's ever been created by humanity, and yet even they struggle with these issues. So I'm wondering... What's the starting point for African countries if they did want to form some of these regional relationships in order to negotiate common tariffs and common relationships with a country like China? Yeah, I mean, the issue you're raising there is one of capabilities and one of income level. So if you're looking at the the qualifications you need to meet as an African country for some of those tariff um, reprieves, essentially, countries like Kenya, we, we no longer qualify for some of those, but in some areas we do. So part of the problem is the fact that African economies are spread across across the low income, very low income, um, to more moderate and low income. Those are all very real definitions when it comes to things like the sort of financing you can access, when it comes to things, the sort of tariffs um, that you're, you're allowed to be accepted from. And that is a reality that's not going to change. The way I think we can get around that is for the countries where their capabilities are in areas um, that are quite low value in nature, like flowers is fairly low value, value chain, though very lucrative. I think there is an opportunity for countries to start moving to the more sophisticated products. And I don't mean massively sophisticated like, you know, electronics, but I am thinking about things like deepening um, light manufacturing and starting to really develop the capabilities there in a matter that means Chinese demand. That will really be one of the more pragmatic ways for countries to deal with this issue without feeling like they're going to lose everything. Because the reality is that if you look at the capabilities that countries have, it's not that what they're selling, what they're exporting to China is the only thing that they can export. No, it's often that they don't know what they could be exporting to China, and therefore they do not have the incentive to deepen their capabilities in that sector and then target that to the Chinese market. So I think the combination of really looking at things that you're already doing well and seeing where the Chinese market meets, I think will create a more of a chance, I think, of preventing this competition and sort of race to the bottom. How does beneficiation of, of raw mineral resources f- kind of feature in, in this conversation? Kobus, I'm sorry, can you explain what beneficiation means? Oh, sorry. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, the idea... Um, the idea of, of doing some of the refining um, of, 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 say, mineral resources, you know, kind of with, within the country in order to, to, to kind of move up the value chain and to produce something that, that is more valuable, you know, kind of per unit 
or per per kilogram than than just raw mineral ore. Um, you know, so so the idea that that the country can can then kind of move up the value chain and make more money from from the same the same product. Um, I mean that that is always the holy grail. You know, kind of in in Africa, like I've seen it. You know, I've seen it mentioned for literal decades you know kind of decade in decade out kind of in in development documents in, in africa and people are always calling for it but i was wondering whether you see it as as you know kind of realistic and even whether it would actually be beneficial um particularly taking into account the, the kind of environmental impact of it as well yeah you raise, you raise an important point and i do echo your skepticism i mean one of the practical realities linked to that is just a capital intensive very niche um, expertise, you need to do that credibly and long term. So if you're going to do that, and we've seen examples where in some countries, you know, for example, it's a fossil fuel sector, where you start actually building the skills out in your domestic market to make sure that more and more um, your, your, the people of your country are able to meaningfully inter, in, interact with that sector. But it's very niche on one hand in terms of skills, but also it's very capital intensive in an in a, in a, in a environment where Cap Africa really doesn't have that. And just to be, underline the importance of what you're talking here, because of the pivot that we're seeing due to climate change from fossil fuels, and there's just this divestment from fossil fuels, what that is meaning is that there is this deepened impetus for the extraction of metals and minerals in Africa, mainly for the renewable energy technologies, but also for the digital technologies, which are becoming increasingly important in this new green economy that we're all talking about. So the pressure you're talking about is very real and very pronounced. But without the presence of facilities, to deal with precisely those issues. One, to make sure that African, young Africans are being equipped and skilled up to actually qualify for all of these roles, the more technical roles. I don't mean the roles of being janitors or these other things, which is fine, but the more technical, lucrative roles, but more importantly, providing the capital the deep amount of capital to allow African players to contribute more meaningfully. And that's why you, you're right. It's been, we've been talking about this now for 50 years. There's still no momentum there. And I think it's not just an African problem. I mean, I've been saying this with candor to a lot of people is that people talk about, oh, value addition, Africa, you know, we should really be encouraging it. But the vested interest in global supply chains are against it, if we're being perfectly candid. The current arrangements right now work for everybody but Africa. So who is going to help Africa take away the, the value that they're extracting from the current arrangements. That is the big political economy question that gets forgotten. And then what happens is that Africa is blamed for not having the initiative to sort out these issues. And the dirty secret in all of this is that China is partially to blame for this because of the subsidies that they're providing to their state-owned enterprises that do a lot of this processing of, of minerals and raw materials. There's no way African countries can compete when the electricity or other subsidies are making it the price so low in, in, for them to compete against. But let's talk a little bit about the ease of doing business in a country like Kenya. Capital News, which is a Kenyan news website, uh, showcased uh, this weekend a story about a 28-year-old entrepreneur named Anthony Mutungu. And, and it really highlights the challenge that I think a lot of African entrepreneurs are facing. So... He saw an opportunity in the market to, to manufacture USB cables that connect to your phone. He saw an opportunity that he could replace the imports from China, so that's very good at reducing the trade deficit. It's manufacturing, so it, it can help improve the local economy, and he can sell them to intra-Africa as well. So many benefits for this kind of manufacturing. A 20-year-old doing this is exactly the dream that you're talking about in terms of skills and young people and new business. And yet... He says that the 
the difficulties that he's had running his business from the cost of electricity, the cost of fuel, the bureaucracy with the government, getting permits. And then there is a bias, he's saying locally, of products made in Kenya. That consumers say they don't trust domestically made products, they think it's counterfeit, they want to buy foreign products. So there seems to be a lot of reforms and a change of culture that also has to happen domestically in places like Kenya as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, th these are the things which were being tracked in the, formerly the IFCEs are doing business. Um, and yeah, you know, in some areas, Kenya got better. In some areas, Kenya got worse. And so, Rwanda was leading in that. But I think the fundamental problem you're talking about, there's high barriers to entry. And then now you're going to start linking that to the, the formality required to meaningfully interact in many of these spaces, which is a fundamental constraint that locks out a lot of African private sector. So what I mean by that is if you're looking at a player, particularly a small and medium enterprise, which by the way is 90% of African private sector, when people talk about the African private sector, you're talking about small and medium enterprise, a lot of whom are informal. Yeah. So the large corporates, in terms of value, they're massive, but if you're talking in terms of labor and firms, they're not. So the bulk of labor sitting in this SME sector that's, that's, that tends to be quite informal. The reality is that the policy environment and the policy prescriptions that are designed to solve the sort of problems you're talking about are not necessarily centered to the SMEs in place. This is something I've talked about before. If you're looking at the sort of things that used to be tracked in the ease of doing business while very useful for large corporates, they tended to be more outward facing to try and attract investment. And as a result, you find a lot of the issues that the bulk of private sector are dealing with are not necessarily um, addressed. I think that said, what I have been seeing is a deeper impetus to start getting to the bottom of creating an enabling environment for micro, small, and medium enterprise. But it's still early days yet. And you know, in countries like Kenya, things like the cost of electricity is real. But at the same time, we're always being lauded that you know your grid is almost entirely green. These are the tensions that you have to start thinking about when you're saying, well, then what? How do we actually build a green economy um, that is accessible? Um, that is centered on the reality of where African labor sits, uh, but at the same time, dealing with the high barriers, particularly in terms of compliance and technical capabilities that are especially required to do things like access export markets. One of the biggest non-tariff barriers, including to China, is the, non is the, is the standards issue, you know, whether it's the phytosanitary standards, whatever it is. And it takes an incredible amount of money and technical consistency to consistently comply to those standards. So what you'll find is that in countries like Kenya and other African countries, the export officers, the government export officers that are responsible for trying to push exports, part of their biggest um, responsibility and their biggest need is to help um, you know, the African private sector players to understand, comply, and consistently meet these standards because that really has been one of the biggest NTBs for us. Moving back to the, the continental level, um, I've seen some some predictions that, that at this time at, at FOCAC, um, there'll be some discussion about, um, about how, you know, foreign businesses and then particularly Chinese businesses and investment will fit into the AU um, Accelerated Industrial Development for Africa plan and also the African mining vision. Um, so I was wondering, kind of, you know, how do you see these kind of overarching plans from the AU? And like, does the AU have the kind of muscle and vision to to kind of pre present a kind of a, a continental kind of like approach that could actually like push Africa forward in, in these respects? I think that will come from private sector. You know, if I'm looking at the way, if you're looking at the capabilities and capital from China, 
And then you're trying to marry that with the economic transformation mandate that Africa has, obviously articulated by government. But when you're looking at the real economy players that are also making it happen, I am seeing a lot of alignment with the capabilities that particularly the Chinese private sector is bringing and the, re the opportunities and the needs that Africa has. And I see them in mainly five areas. Just to speak to your point about modernization and in sort of this impetus for industrialization, which now has to be greener. The first is if you look at construction and the capabilities the Chinese players have demonstrated in the construction sector. And if you square that with the urbanization that Africa is going through and the youth bulge, you can see that Africa has a massive need, particularly for housing and affordable housing. And the Chinese players have proven that they can do it. If you look at the affordable housing project in Kenya, which was run by government. Huh? We had this, this basically a 10-year program to try and get affordable houses and uh, affordable houses built. Chinese contractors are the ones that got them up on time and in line with the government requirements. That, in my view, is something that private sector, Chinese private sector is well-placed to tap into and to help build out affordable, but preferably green housing in particular to deal with the urbanization issue and, and the youth issue. And this is not just going to be housing. It will be schools. It will be, it will be a whole bunch of issues that African governments um, need to make sure that their urban planning can meet this massive bulge that is continuing to be the reality of our demographic assets. The second big area I'm seeing for China, obviously, is what you mentioned is manufacturing. And there, what I'm seeing is a very interesting trend around, not only in the aftermath of COVID, looking at health PPEs, you know, also in agro-processing, trying to get a sense of self-sufficiency there. But I'm really seeing, though, the inklings of what we call mass customization. This is a concept that Bitang and Demo um, shared with me. We we're talking about something else. But I was like, this is exactly what China seems to be doing if you're looking at the way they're approaching manufacturing for the continent. If you're looking at the customization of products for the African market that are then produced for the African market. And I'll go into this a bit later when I talk about the digital economy piece. That is a very unique way compared to the way you know North America or even other Asian partners like Japan or South Korea who sort of make the products for themselves and then sell some of them to, you know, to Africa. So if you're talking about a market-driven model that will foster manufacturing by transferring those capabilities on the continent, I think the mass customization way piggybacking on the African continental free trade area is, is, is credible. I think the other big one that we're going to see, as I mentioned, is renewable energy. We're seeing this pivot to that, and I've already mentioned what that will mean for the metro the metal and mineral sector, but of course we already all know on this call that China is already the number one um, producer of solar panels, you know, wind technology. And I think Africa will continue to go to China for those uh, for those products. And really, the story there is how do we make sure we start manufacturing at least parts of that to begin with on the continent. And then finally, as I said, the digital economy piece is going to be huge, um, and there we will continue to see an ability of Chinese private sector to understand the African consumer, particularly our digital habits, because it's a lot easier to do that because of the way you everybody leaves a digital imprint. So once they're on your platform, you get a lot of information and the ability to then customize you know, products and services for the African consumer. Okay, I had a whole bunch of other things that I wanted to talk to you about, but we're at the doorstep now of the digital economy and the digital space. You recently held a seminar with Professor Bidenge Indemo, who is at the University of Nairobi. He's a professor of entrepreneurship at the Nairobi School of Business. It was a fascinating discussion. I'll put links to it in the show notes. I'd like to start our conversation about the China-Africa digital economy with some comments from Professor Indemo. Actually, we wasted a lot of... Um many years um, during the Cold War 
and we took positions which were not helpful. We couldn't make our own decisions as to what we want to do. And because of the Cold War, we got the Mobutus, we got all kinds of things. Um, it would be completely unfair that we get into that space again um, to, to say uh, we want to take positions with China or with the US. I think playing like the UN does, that uh, multilateralism works, that your friends, you can have your friends and I respect you for that, would be the best thing for us going forward. And that is a message that the Kenyan government has expressed very clearly to the United States government, that it is not up to the United States to determine what networking equipment that Safaricom and other telecom operators in Kenya choose. And the ICT minister in Kenya was very, very assertive in pushing back on this. And in many ways, Safaricom is that United Nations that Professor Ndemo talked about, because in the technology stack at Safaricom for both 4G and 5G, there is a mixture of Huawei and other countries' equipment. So it's not an either-or. That conversation you had with Professor Ndemo was absolutely fascinating. Uh, Talk to us about whether or not it is possible that Kenya has the the ability to push back against the great powers. Thank you. And I want to just say it's not just Kenya. This is a position I've seen by top leaders in Africa across the board. Nobody's buying the the being strong-armed into choosing. It's just not a practical reality. I think the question is not more, not really whether Kenya can do it. The question is, it is going to happen anyway, mainly because if you look at the trade and commercial ties that um, Africa has with China, those are often private sector driven. So that is a market driven engagement that is mutually beneficial. So I think there are two things to say there. First of all is that if you're talking about a decoupling, which is basically what we're being told, we need to decouple from China. I think the director of the WTO, Ngozi, Dr. Ngozi, really made this point quite well in, uh, in comments that she made last week, which is that Europe and North America are not decoupling. So why are they trying to strong arm other countries into decoupling, despite you know the great power rhetoric that is coming out of those capitals? So I think it's very hard to implement a decoupling mandate when the trade, commercial, and economic ties are what they are. And as you've pointed out, they're only growing and they're only burgeoning. I think what would be most more constructive in that space would be for players like the US and, and Europe to really demonstrate where they're adding value. And I think I would like to say that we have seen, particularly in my view, the United States Development Finance Corporation show tactical foresight and intellectual maturity when it comes to demonstrating the value that the US government can bring to players in Africa. We saw this in the fact that they were part of the consortium that Safaricom led to enter the Ethiopian telecoms market. The Ethiopian telecoms market is, you know, Ethiopia is the second most populous country in Africa. Its telecom market has been entirely closed. So you can imagine the sort of latent demand that is going on in that, in that sector. And so what Safaricom did, the bid was Safaricom. Of course, China was a part of that through the, as you mentioned, the partnership with Huawei. Um, the UK was a part of it in the CDC. Japan was also a part of it. And then in the maturity of the US Development Finance Corporation, they were also a part of it. So when you're looking at those sorts of arrangements that are quite collaborative in nature, that are not, uh, you know, that are quite subtle. They're not about edicts that sort of lead with what the U.S. is bringing to the table. That is where I think 
frankly, will be the reality of the post-COVID world. This multilateral arrangement where everybody is bringing something to the table and then the development needs um, and, and frankly the financial opportunities are then met in a very pragmatic manner because that decoupling will simply will not be a practical reality going forward. Um, you know, w w one of the bigger trends in, in all of this is that um, that Africa has, over the last few years, we've seen a, a sharp decline in um, in bilateral policy bank lending from from China, and at the same time, a, a, a great kind of kind of new diversity in private lending from from China. So, you know, a, a lot of private banks and state-owned enterprises and so on, kind of stepping into the lending space. So, I guess you know, do, do you do you see these issues and these kind of conflicts with between western countries and other other of african investors and and the chinese side kind of sharpening over the next few years simply because there's so many chinese companies now stepping into the space that's an interesting question and i think my view is that you know this pivot to private sector dominated inter or private sector more private sector dominated interaction between china and africa has been long happening under the radar and it will increasingly be the arena that will drive that that relationship part of it is because they've been it's been basically been 20 years of state to state interaction which you both know well so I'm not going to go into that and the amount of money that has been deployed in that relationship over 20 years there's a need for some of that to settle down number 1 and number 2 for the issues that have now been arising on the african side whether it's the government or you know the civil society but also on the chinese side this is now going to be this is the time for those issues to be resolved. So when you're looking at the tone that FOCAC is having, what I'm seeing is that we need to start um, updating the, 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 the arrangement of the state-to-state -state side. So I'm just saying that that is one track of what I see will be happening. As a result, you're going to be seeing a much deeper private sector engagement. One, on the Africa side, there is appetite for it. As I mentioned, the capabilities that the Chinese private sector brings will provide opportunities for technical transfers, joint ventures, a very underdeveloped and very under the radar part of the China-Africa relationship. But as you know, the report that you pointed out um, during your show that was just recently released on market power and the role of Chinese private sector in Africa, you can see that that relationship and that dynamic has only just started. And if you look at it from the Chinese side, obviously some of what's going on in their own countries, in their own country has created this impetus to sort of have more a more international presence. And you know, Africa is obviously going to be one of the countries um, that benefit from that. So I don't necessarily see a tension there because when you look at the capabilities that the Chinese private sector is bringing, it's quite distinct to what the U.S. private sector brings. And that's something I always say that this rhetoric, when you look at the reality on the ground, that competition really isn't there in that sense. If you look at the U.S. private sector, what they bring is a lot of knowledge of the continent, particularly private sector knowledge. The other thing they really bring is a capability in understanding financial vehicles and how they can meaningfully intersect with um, private sector players in Africa. We see that in the way a lot of U.S. financing, you know, whether it's out of the silicon, is really financing a lot of tech and startups in Africa. But now, with this this new USDFC, also seeing it in the way the US government is deploying its capabilities there. So when you're looking at it from an African perspective, they're actually quite complementary. On the one hand, you have the Chinese bringing the hardware and the hard skills, transferring some of those capabilities on the continent in a more meaningful way in the key sectors I outlined. And then on the other hand, you've got the US private sector and the US government bringing the financial vehicles and the financial capabilities to then drive growth. So that's why I mean that sometimes this rhetoric around decoupling and great power is not necessarily matched by what's going on on the ground. 
you know one one of the one of the issues that's coming up, I think, at at Focac this year um, is I think that was coming up anyway. Is is the idea of 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 the of kind of green economies and, and kind of more investment in in sustainable um, energy generation and other sustainable fe- fields? And I think that has just been accelerated by the recent announcement that that China is stopping um, building coal financed or coal powered uh, electricity in in Africa. So I was wondering where you see the kind of green discussion landing at, at the moment in, in, in the China Africa space? Like what what are some of the what are some of the, the kind of topics that you see coming up and then how is how how are African actors kind of like you know reacting to to the coal announcement? I mean, well, first of all, the divestment from fossil fuel is a concern that I think African countries have, particularly Nigeria, has articulated and the implications for energy security. Um, I think this is not just directly to China, this is directly to everybody, that that divestment is, is may compromise energy security and that there shouldn't be a, a, a ban just a blanket ban on fossil fuel, but particularly things like natural gas um, need to be prioritized. This is part of the inbuilt bias we're seeing in climate finance that Africa countries are going to be grappling with, not just with China, but with everything else that's coming in with this very global North rich country bias. So I think that 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 is just one, one of the issues. The second issue is the division of mitigation and adaptation financing. Again, China is quite new in the field. We'll see what they bring. Right now, if you look at the difference between mitigation and adaptation, those are two basic pools of climate finance. One is to mitigate you know, climate finance, that's a lot of the carbon neutrality, net zero stuff. And then the other is to adapt, you know, and allow you to build uh, more resilient um, economies. Almost everything um, from the private sector in the in rich countries is, is mitigation focused. And if you look at the, 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 the bilateral financing, you'll find that only about 19% of all climate financing mobilized by rich countries adaptation focus. The reason why this is important is that beyond the mitigation stuff that we're doing in so particularly the energy sector, a lot of the real economy livelihood is would require a lot of adaptation financing. So just I'm just pointing this out to show you that already we're seeing challenges in the way the climate finance arena is being set up and the way it is unintentionally making it a bit harder um, for, for, for African players to, to intersect. And then obviously the third big thing there would be a lot of climate finance are very formal, very structured, very rigorous due diligence and you know reporting requirements. That is a high transaction cost for private sector. Um, so those are some of the things. So when China is coming in, as you're saying, with the green finance, they are moved to divest. I mean, you know, I think they sort of have to do that. I don't think they can really do that and be seen as a global. They can't really stay, you know, financing coal. And coal specifically, I agree with. But things like natural gas, I think we need more nuance. But they can't continue doing that and be seen as a global leader. I'm quite interested to see how they actually end up setting up their climate finance um, instruments. And will they actually meet the development priorities that African countries have in a way that makes sense for African countries. Because I think now the real risk we're seeing is climate finance will be another arena um, that we look at Africa. And it's particularly concerning because we're seeing, you know, the global um, for the Center for Global Development actually points out that aid finance um, that used to go to non-climate activities like you know, humanitarian aid is actually being reduced um, and it's not being replaced. It's not being replaced. It's like climate finance is now aid finance is being repackaged into climate finance, but all of the requirements that Africa has that's non-climate related, it's not like that's being replaced. So there are all of these issues, these issues of 
um, climate finance displacing ODA, what does that mean when you're looking at things like the financial infrastructure in Africa is not in place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, what does that actually mean? So in some ways, China coming a bit later to the party may be not a bad thing for Africa. So we'll, we'll see um, sort of the way that they're setting things up um, in terms of how they choose to sort of deliver on this, of this, on this new green mandate. And it'll be interesting to see how they balance these new mandates that they have overseas with the surge in coal production that they have at home right now. So any efforts that they have in reducing their carbon footprint abroad may be offset by the increase in use of coal and reliance on coal to help get them out of the the power shortage that they're facing right now. We don't have a lot of time left because we know we have to let you go, but I want to get to the question of debt very quickly because that's especially important in Kenya. Kenya's looking at about right now $70 billion of total debt. About half of that comes domestically. The other half comes internationally. China, of course, is the largest bilateral creditor. Very similar situation that we learned in Zambia now. The debt figures there have been upwardly revised to $27 billion, about $6.6 billion owed to China. So China was is alone compared to other major creditors in Kenya in insisting that the loans for the standard gauge railway be repaid, whereas the Paris Club creditors and others have given some debt extensions, not any debt write-offs or restructuring, I should note, but debt service extensions and deferrals. What's the situation right now with Kenya's overall debt-to-GDP ratio and the commitments that it has to China? Yeah, well, I'll just start by saying I don't think debt-to-GDP is the most useful metric for measuring debt-carrying capacity. That one is better looked at if you look at revenue to debt, servicing costs, revenue to debt. That's when you begin to understand if a country can afford debt. So what's the situation in that case with Kenya? It's been, it's been, it's been abysmal, and it has been for a while. And I think that's always a part of the story that people always forget, is that the fiscal policy had been unsustainable for a while. The revenue-to-GDP ratio had been going down. It's been going down for about eight years, yet we kept on taking on not only more debt, but more expensive debt, the euro bonds, you know, the infrastructure bonds, these very expensive commercial papers. So I think couching it again in the reality that there is a role of, of prudent fiscal policy um, in being able to manage things like you know Chinese debt. So I think on the on the, the Chinese debt question is an interesting one because there is on one hand this practical political economy reality of a new government um, going to be in in place in the next you know in 2022 onwards, and so perhaps a feeling that let's try and secure as much repayment as possible as for the arrangement before this new government comes in because I think we all know the the political economy of technocracy in Africa, where where there's a new government, you kind of have to wait, you know, and sort of see, okay, what what are they going to be doing? Who's going to be in charge? And, you know, so there is that sort of, I guess, more practically informed reality. But I think the other thing is, as I said before, the state-to-state relations between China and Africa, I think they're reaching a point of maturity, and we're going to see this transition, you know. So as you guys have pointed out, this sort of reduction in public lending, et cetera, this also predated COVID, because there's a need for a lot of the issues that have come up through situations like the Chinese debt in Kenya, the things that we've talked about before. You know, were projects priced properly? Was the tenure agreed to um, in these loans actually realistic? What role did the lack of transparency play in financial mismanagement? All of these things, you know, that that have been brewing under the the surface, I think now we're going to be seeing in this new phase that being a lot more centered. And I think the third reason why you think you're seeing some of this tone is 
the, the world is a lot less friendly for China now than it was when a lot of these agreements were being made. So I think you'll see a bit more of an impetus of, you know, let's make sure that Chinese interests are actually being secured um, and that China is not seen as Father Christmas, where you just come for free money, and that there are, bit, there are a bit more requirements placed on the Chinese side, because that is the reality that we're in. You know, that is the, that is the new global order that we're getting into. How how? Um, optimistic are you at the moment about the African debt situation in relation to China, but also more in relation to to other lenders as well? Um, you know, obviously we, we're seeing slow progress in places like like Kenya around around this the, their particular debt crisis, and obviously some African countries have a lot larger debt problem than than most, um, and some only, only a few have a very large Chinese debt problem. So you know, looking forward to FOCAC. Um, do you see kind of new approaches or kind of pragmatic solutions to some of these problems? Or do you are you worried that some of these African countries are just going to be sliding towards default and crisis? Yeah, I think it will be on a case-to-case basis and it will be a, com- a combination of the grace of creditors and the fiscal management of the countries. It's not going to be a clear-cut thing. If the countries actually decide to start dealing with the issues that got them in the mess in the first place, because there's no country in a debt crisis now that can blame everything on COVID, yeah? These are, these are issues that are maturing over time. So if there's an indication that the fiscal management is actually going to be dealt with, that will have to be squared with the, with the grace of creditors. And now that will really depend on the profile of creditors you have. If your creditors are bilaterals or multilaterals where you can sit and renegotiate, good for you. But as we know, for a lot of African countries, a lot of the debt is private creditor debt and they're not interested in any sorts of conversations around restructuring or, you know. So I think it will be a very, very case-by-case basis. And I think, frankly, the thing, the, the, the chip that Africa will have to bring to the table that African governments have to bring to the table is a seriousness in addressing the, the, the long-term issues that led those few countries that are in high debt distress to that point. And that is, again, medium to long-term. So I think the real macroeconomic tension that we're seeing um, to the point you're making about debt is that countries need more money to get out of COVID in an environment where there's really a lot of debt stress for some countries, a lot of, particularly a lot of limited revenue generation capabilities, at least in the medium term. How do you square that with this need for, for a lot more money? But I think the other big macroeconomic tension is that Africa, many Afri- some African countries need a lot of debt relief and a de- debt restructuring, but is their fiscal policy and their fiscal management reflective of that? Is there an assurance that these new arrangements will actually actually be met credibly. So these are not easy issues, but as I said, this is the new phase, I think, that we're getting into, particularly with China. Well, we covered a lot of ground. Unfortunately, we didn't cover anywhere near as much as I would have hoped because I've got so many more questions for you, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And Setse, are you back on social media again now? Not really, but... Um, not it, really? Not really. I haven't, you know, I, as I mentioned, a lot of the work I've been doing on China, Africa has been more private-facing, but whatever, whenever I bring anything to the public arena, I'll be sure to let you know. Okay, okay. So we'll, it's probably better for your sanity that you're off social media. That, so, <laughs> but, but once again, Again, thank you so much for your time and your insights. It was great to reconnect with you and to hear your views on these issues. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eric and Kobus. Kobus, it's been a while since we've spoken to Nsetse. We used to speak to her quite a bit many years ago, and then she's very busy now. So I'm so excited that we had the chance to have her back on the show. But what's always so interesting about speaking with her is that she says the quiet parts out loud. She says the things that 
really are contrarian in many respects. And to say all of these things that need to be said, and again, you don't hear very many people in the development economy space saying these things. Uh, she seems much more of a realist and, a, and someone very practical. And I'm hoping that people both in African capitals as well as in Beijing are listening to what she says because there's a lot of value in it. Yeah, a thousand percent. Like, it's it's amazing to, to hear her speak. Um, I think one of the points that really resonated with me was this idea of how frequently people who are applying for for money from the global south need to de-sophisticate their plans, you know, kind of in order to, to present them to donors in a way that the donors understand. You've said that all from the beginning that domestic politics in Europe and the United States end up shaping so much of what happens in, in in places like Africa. Yes, yes, exactly. And you know, and and it, I think it also it also creates what's what's possible politically. You know, um, in in and 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 what's possible politically then ends up is shaping what's what's possibly financial financially. Um, so so I think it's such an important point, and it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out at FOCAC this year. Like kind of what you know what the Chinese are willing to discuss, and what is what is within the realm of possibility. You know, kind of. In, in, in terms of their kind of larger global position um, and how that kind of shakes out on the African side. Now, it'll be interesting to see how these climate issues that she talked about play out and the unintended consequences. So we've talked about previously on the program about when Europe talks about a post-carbon future, that is terrible news for Africa and for countries like Nigeria or even to some extent the Democratic Republic of Congo. We've talked about how cobalt may in fact just be a transition technology on the way to, say, lithium or iron phosphate and other types of batteries. So again, Africa, because of its place in the value chain, uh, doesn't do well necessarily when these blanket statements come out and technologies are changing very quickly as is the case in electric vehicle batteries. So that'll be very interesting to watch as well when we see these climate declarations coming out of, say, COP26 and what the unintended consequences may be for Africa. Yeah, completely. And also, you know, African leaders in, in dealing with these these different foreign, foreign finances have to take into account that for many of them, they don't really care you know, kind of about the lives of African consumers. They don't particularly care whether African consumers get the things that they want or they have the the kind of electricity, for example, that they need. Um, you know, they're looking at, at kind of national emissions levels and, you know, and, and they'd like to kind of keep things low. So so African African leaders have to be incredibly pragmatic and kind of hard-nosed in response, you know, and really and really kind of like question, I think, some of the, some of the assumptions of, of what development looks like. Like, for example, the idea of, of of development being the expansion of a unified national grid to cover even rural areas you know like like there's ways of developing that aren't necessarily in the in the kind of tech development textbooks and uh, it, it's going to be up to African societies to find those in order to develop you know kind of in the face of a lot of a lot of barriers and a lot of those barriers are also will include things like like universally agreed ideas of like what kind of power should be funded and whatnot. So the key factor that she raised, which I think is very important, we also addressed this previously as well, is that now that China made its announcement about coal and that it's going to stop financing, what will replace it? So it's this idea that they have announced that they'll no longer fund a $2 billion or $3 billion coal plant in a place like Zimbabwe. Will they then replace that with a $3 million solar farm? 
So that's going to be the key thing is are the resources going to be there in the necessary abundance in order to really fulfill some of the huge energy issues that confront a lot of African countries. So that's something to keep an eye on at FOCAC. And again, also this idea uh, is China living its own value. So it may, may be talking about uh, not funding coal overseas, but domestically it is just binging on coal right now. And at the same time, buying huge amounts of coal from you, Cobus, in South Africa. Well, not you personally, but your compatriots in South Africa, which again, keeps alive a business that really should be sunsetting and South African coal producers should be transitioning to greener, cleaner energies. Now, I say that about South Africa. That is a challenge that we have not done very well in the United States, as most evidenced by the ongoing uh, dispute over the infrastructure bill, where, incidentally, climate issues were taken out of the infrastructure bill because of Joe Manson. So again, this is not something that just countries like South Africa and China are grappling with, but the U.S. as well. Final thoughts to you before we go. Yeah, I mean, that then raises a lot of questions around around the concept of American leadership, right? Because if, you know, kind of if if the idea is that that the US is just is just automatically enlightened because of its system, and it's therefore in a natural position to lead the world, well, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> serious questions, I think, being raised around that issue around the, the mansion situation. In relation to Africa, I have a lot of sympathy for the pressure from the global south around more nuance, as Anzette mentioned, more nuance around some like issues like, like natural gas um, as, a, as a potential transition technology. Where I have a little bit less sympathy towards African governments is the idea, what you see from, from governments in Botswana, for example, or in Nigeria, just this kind of idea of well, we're just going to be trying to make our last to squeeze our last little bit of money out of out of hydrocarbons while we still can until there's some kind of global go, global ban being imposed on us, you know, and and therefore build like investing money into into things like building pipelines that are only going to be useful for you know another twenty years. I have a lot less sympathy about around those kind of decision making, you know, kind of, and I think I think there needs to be more pressure on African governments around that issue, but I think. A lot of people, even within the climate field, will actually disagree with me. Yeah, I, I don't get, for example, where U.S. legitimacy on climate comes from. So the United States has two-thirds of its energy mix is, I think it's more than two-thirds, it's close to 70, 75%, I think. I, I looked up the number recently. It's an absurdly high number, it, it, our carbon-based energy. It's the number one oil and gas exporter in the world, and so I, it, and it's the number two polluter. So I'm just not entirely sure where the credibility comes from for the United States to have any type of mandate on climate with anybody. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it just seems perplexing to me that they would be a leader on this front, given the fact that they are the world's, literally the world's number one oil exporter. Yeah, you know, and... and uh, <laughs> it's like, how is that possible that they can talk to anybody about carbon when they are exporting themselves? And they there is, and again, stripping out the climate provisions out of the infrastructure bill. Uh, you know, it just, where does the leadership mandate come from for them to be lecturing anybody about anything on climate? I don't know. Well, this is the thing, right? It's kind of like it's, um, you know, if, if one claims that leadership position for oneself, then one actually lead, needs to lead, right? Kind of because if you don't lead, then what you're actually doing is you're leading people backwards. Um, you know, kind of because then you're a norm setter for like kind of bad behavior around the world. And that's, you know, that's, that's not really what we have time for right now in relation to climate. 
But that's exactly the point about China, which is if they at home are just binging on coal and then saying we've got this green belt and road, how seriously should we really take them? I, I think in this case, the U.S. and China are very similar in, those, in, in, in their behavior in that. So we're going to talk about climate in the run-up to FOCAC. We've got some shows scheduled for that. We also have some fantastic new, new books and the authors of those new books coming up. Uh, we're going to interview Joanna Chu uh, f- from Canada on her new book. And also Jonathan Hillman from CSIS on his new book coming up also in November. So lots of great things. These are the issues, again, that we are just putting forward every single day in our daily newsletter and now in our new Weekly Digest. If you want to get the Weekly Digest, go to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. I just posted the first edition on Friday. We have memberships that start at $5. There's $10. There's $20 a month. And those depend on you know, how much engagement we have in terms of we're holding Zoom calls and Zoom briefings. We're also giving more community and discussions. We've got so many cool things going on over at Patreon. If you want to get the daily newsletter, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Sign up. You'll get full access to the website with thousands of articles in the archive, all indexed according to country and keyword and topic. So it's an easy way to research all these issues. And we put as much primary source material in there as possible. So whenever there's primary source, we put it in there because we know a lot of folks are doing research and rely on primary source material in English, French, and Chinese. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. We'll be back again next week with another episode. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Music